in my mind's eye, I can see doorways full of smoke that that are as black as black as black smoke as you can even imagine. You know, like an oil fire coming out of a doorway and just going on in. I have a uh, challenges in in exerting myself and. Uh, my lung capacity isn't what it was. I mean, and so where the air quality goes down, that is exact. You know, that even is worse. I only had about a 10-year career in the fire service. I started out as a out of high school and worked for about seven years in the California Department of Forestry. And then after that, I went to work for a, a city department in Riverside, California. And worked there for another five years before I refugeed and you know came up north. Before you refugeed, <laughs> emigrated. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. I was very well set in in home and business and lifestyle in Southern California, but I noticed a you know decline in the air quality and. In that area, within you know, in the LA basin, so to speak. I know the air has even gotten better there now, but back in the 60s and 70s, it was quite bad. From my business, that was about 10 blocks from this rather large mountain in the middle of town, I couldn't see the mountain one day, and I, all of a sudden, it dawned on me what what's going on. You know, that's when I decided that. It was time to to move to a different situation. Move my family. I'm Lauren Spates, and this is Chronic Catastrophe, a podcast looking at what happens to our minds, our bodies, and our spirits while living through recurring environmental disasters. Climate change is almost always framed as a nightmare that's destroying our environment. And we're told we should care about it because sea levels are rising, storms are getting worse, and more species are nearing extinction. We've all seen that tragic photo of the emaciated polar bear starving on the tundra. There's no denying climate change is harming the Earth and the animal kingdom. But perhaps it's time to pay attention to the endless cycle of environmental disaster for another reason: what it's doing to human health. In this episode, we're looking at how these devastating disasters are making us sick. It's about our lungs, our brain, and our immune system. All are affected by the bad air from a wildfire or the contaminated water from a flood or hurricane, and the effects stay with us even after embers burn out, floodwaters recede, and headlines move on to the next big story. Climate change is already reducing our quality of life and our longevity. It isn't just bad for polar bears. It's bad for our species too. When you picture that scene in your own mind's eye, of David Holt plunging into that inky black smoke, picture him without a mask, without a respirator. It was the 1960s and 70s, and as he says, they weren't thinking about those things. Of course, now firefighters wear breathing apparatus to provide them with clean air in the thick of it. And people understand that polluted air is bad for us, which is why so many Californians had N95 masks at the ready when COVID struck. We already own them for fire season. To understand how we went from Holt's situation in the 70s to today, it helps to have a little background. At the end of World War II, 
industrialization spiked in the San Francisco Bay Area. Local governments recognized pollution was a problem, and they measured it in levels of eye irritation. In 1955, the Bay Area Air Quality Management District formed to monitor and control pollution in the counties around San Francisco Bay. It was the country's first agency dedicated to air pollution. Now we measure air quality in terms of what's called particulate matter, or the mixture of solid particles and liquid droplets in the air. The more the particles, the worse the air quality. There are two main classes of particulate matter to know, PM10 and PM2.5. Both particles are small enough to inhale, and both are found in wildfire smoke. The smaller the particle, the deeper into your body it can travel. When you inhale polluted air, the largest particles stick in the passages between your windpipe and your lungs. The smaller particles, like PM2.5, land in the lungs and their alveoli, the little sacs that actually exchange the air we breathe. And even tinier particles penetrate even deeper, where they can ultimately enter our bloodstream. As this understanding of particulate matter matured, so did the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. In 1991, the district created Spare the Air Days, a label to alert residents when the air is forecast to be unhealthy. It started primarily for the summer season, the time when clear skies, hot temperatures, and light winds combine to trap air pollutants near the ground where we can breathe them in. But because of climate change, this trapping happens more often. According to Dr. Tom Daly, a pulmonary and critical care medicine doctor with Kaiser Permanente Santa Clara and the former chair of the Bay Area Air Quality Management District Hearing Board, in 2020, we had 30 consecutive spare the air days. The prior record was just 16. And what happens uh, during a spare the air day because of these fires is we get this particulate matter in the air. And particulates are so dangerous. These are 2.5 micron particles, so they're really tiny. They are inhaled. They don't just cause problems for the lungs. We see statistically increased heart attacks, statistically increased stroke. We see uh, many uh, increase in problems whenever there is a spare the air day. On spare the air days, you can see and feel that the air isn't fresh. It's smoky or hazy. But our health isn't only threatened by pollution we can see. That's the message from Francis Coster, a former hospital executive who has devoted his life to, as he puts it, saving the bodies and brains of millions of people, including the most vulnerable among us. Coster has his Ph.D. from the Program for the Study of the Future at the University of Massachusetts, where his work focused on why leaders don't listen to warnings of threats on basic life support systems like air and water, food and fuel, and the implications those leadership failures have on human life. He now evangelizes how pollution in even very, very small amounts has a life-altering impact on people. Wildfire smoke is on his radar. When you have a very bad smoke-filled day, and then the fires go away, and the particulate emissions clear out of the air, the only piece that's cleared out is the visible. There are huge amounts of invisible particulate emissions. And they have, depending on their composition, can have the same damaging impact as cigarette smoke. Everyone knows now that smoking causes cancer, stroke, and heart disease. 
And physicians like Dr. Daly don't hesitate to use cigarette smoking as an analogy for inhaling wildfire smoke. He leans on the air quality index, where a score of 0 to 50 means good air quality, 50 to 100 means unhealthy for those with health conditions, 150 to 200 means unhealthy for all, and so on. I'll let him take it from here. If 150 to 200 is like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, that means 100 to 150 is like smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day. And 50 to 100 is like smoking a quarter pack of cigarettes a day. So people look at those numbers and they say, well, I don't have any health problems. I know it's 100 to 150 day, but I can go outside. I'm healthy. No, it's like you're smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day. Particulate matter is bad. And it's just, I mean, more is worse. If you're really sick to begin with, it's worse. But there's no amount of particulate matter that's good for you. I asked Dr. Daly what he would anticipate in the long term for my health under the current conditions. I told him I'm 36, had a healthy pregnancy and gave birth two years ago, I'm generally healthy, and I'm a non-smoker. He cut me right off. You are smoking. You're just not lighting the match. And I think uh, as we go forward, you're going to be smoking more and more. The lungs don't really care you know, where the toxins came from, they just know they're hurting. Dr. Daly is sure that our poor air quality will cause more asthma, heart attacks, and strokes, the classic symptoms of smoking, even in those who don't light up. Because technically, we're all sort of smoking now, even our kids. My name is Rosar Lera. I'm a postdoctoral scholar at um, Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California in San Diego. And uh, my research and my work there with our group uh, mainly focuses on the effects of wildfire-specific pollution on human health. Aguilera's most recent research, published in April in the journal Pediatrics, shows how wildfire smoke affects children. So we look at the pediatric population in San Diego County, and we wanted to assess and quantify the, the effects of wildfire-specific pollution, the fine particles that are found in wildfire smoke, and how that impacts children's respiratory health. The study crossed data from emergency department and urgent care visits to one particular hospital network in San Diego County, with air quality stats based on zip code for that eight-year period. Specifically, Aguilera and her team focused on days when children aged 1 to 18 were exposed to PM2.5, the tiny particles that can pass deep into your body. They compared days when PM2.5 was composed of regular pollution versus when it was made of wildfire smoke. The difference is important because tailpipe emissions don't unleash the same toxins as fire that sends plastics and metals into the air. And, you know, the experts all tell us that you know, there, there's a lot of nasty stuff in the air, not just some smoke, you know, there's stuff burning. And depending upon where you are, it's uh, can be the nasty stuff from an oak woodland fire, or it can be the nasty stuff from a bunch of buildings and houses and everything that's inside of them that, uh, that just went up in flames. That's Representative Mike Thompson. He serves in the U.S. House of Representatives on behalf of California's 5th Congressional District. His district encompasses all of Napa County and parts of Sonoma and three other Bay Area counties, including the Coffee Park and Fountain Grove neighborhoods, among others that the Tubbs Fire destroyed in 2017. 
He's invested in understanding the details when it comes to wildfire and human health, just like Rosana Aguilera and her team, who proved wildfire smoke with all those toxins result in direct, measurable illnesses in children. We did find that wildfire-specific pollution um, caused a 30% increase in emissions and visits to respiratory illness uh, in children uh, compared to a 4% increase when, um, you know, the same amount of pollution, which is coming from mainly traffic emissions and industrial pollution. So we do see um, a greater impact of a wildfire um, smoke pollution on that um, on those respiratory illnesses in children in, in the county. Aguilera and her colleagues found there was a 30% spike in emergency department visits, a 30% increase in visits to urgent care when PM 2.5 consisted of wildfire smoke, not regular pollution. What's most shocking is that during the study period, 2011 to 2017, there weren't any major wildfires burning in San Diego County, just what we'd call small fires, with their largest burning only 4,000 acres. The past six wildfires in Sonoma County burned 100 times that amount. So what does that mean, respiratory visits? It means a parent bringing a child in for a cough, wheezing, trouble breathing. These are what doctors call acute issues, an effect that develops immediately or within minutes, hours, or days after exposure. But wildfire smoke may also impact a child in the long term. In 2018, Lisa Miller was sitting in her office at the University of California, Davis, where she studies how environmental exposures like air pollution affect pulmonary and immune system development during the first year of life. That year, the Trinity Humboldt wildfires scorched thousands of acres in the rugged redwood forests of northwestern California. When Miller looked outside her window in Davis, about 300 miles away, the smoke was so thick and low, it looked like fog. She realized all the infant monkeys on campus at the California National Primate Research Center were living outside and exposed to the same wildfire smoke she was. So Miller studied those infant monkeys and found that their immune systems didn't respond as well to germs when they reached adolescence. They also had stiffer lungs that couldn't stretch as much. They couldn't take in the same amount of oxygen as the lungs of a baby monkey who wasn't inhaling smoke. The study didn't show that any of the monkeys had cancer, but they're still young. Cancer typically shows up as we get older, so only time will tell for these little guys, and in some ways, for us too. Representative Thompson wants less of this speculation and more certainty around the impact of wildfire smoke and how we protect ourselves. That's why he's co-sponsoring H.R. 4641, a bill requiring the Environmental Protection Agency to research and mitigate the impacts of wildfire smoke. And with climate change, I think uh, everyone has finally come to the realization that we're, we're going to have situations like this you know, going, going forward. Uh, we need to figure out how to deal with uh, appropriate shelter for populations that might be at risk, how we deal with equipment for air filtration, for instance, for school kids. And, and, and in the workplace and everything from stores uh, to restaurants. So uh, it's really important that we do this study, make sure we get it right. It's important for, for the uh, economy and it's important for uh, the health of the people that live anywhere where there might be a fire. The bill will fund four Centers of Excellence for Wildfire Smoke at universities where researchers will study health effects like Aguilera and Miller studied. 
The plan is, then, for that research to implement plans to shield people from smoke. On the uh, research piece, I don't think you're going to see anything tomorrow on, on that because they have to do the research and they have to, you know, have to study it. Uh, but I think what the end result will be is uh, why it's important to provide air filtration systems for you know, our public buildings and our, our private buildings as well. How do we make sure our kids going to school are protected and, 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 and safe? How do we deal with vulnerable populations to make sure that uh, they're housed in areas that are safe? Some of those groups are the indigenous populations that live in the northern reaches of Representative Jared Huffman's district. Congressman Huffman represents California's 2nd Congressional District, which runs up the Pacific Coast from the Golden Gate Bridge to the Oregon border. I represent places that go through this every single year. I could take you up to the northern part of my district in the the Hoopa Valley Tribe area, for example, or areas along the Klamath River where, you know, the smoke is like what we experience in the Bay Area almost every single summer. And these are impoverished communities that really don't have anywhere else to go and some places don't have air conditioning or uh, places where they can be sure that they're getting clean air. It has direct health effects. Uh, It has developmental effects on children who, you know, have to continue to go to school and learn under those types of conditions. So it's it's a real social justice uh, story as well because in the Bay Area, you know, as, as bad as it got last year, A lot of folks had the resources where they could just go somewhere else for a little while, for, you know, a few days or a few weeks. Uh, You can't do that if you're living on uh, the reservation in the Yurok tribe or or the the Hoopa Valley tribe. During the Wallbridge fire in August 2020, the Sonoma County town of Sebastopol, only 12 miles from the fire line, experienced wildly varying air quality from hour to hour. At 6 a.m. on Sunday, August 23rd, Sebastopol's PM 2.5 levels rated a 13 on the air quality index. You could call it healthy air. But five hours later, at 11 a.m., the air was rated 183, unhealthy for everyone, according to the EPA. Or, as Dr. Daly would say, even non-smokers are technically smoking if they're breathing in the outside air. You'd expect this in an area only 12 miles from the fire, But people who live far away should be concerned, too. In their book, Environmedics, The Impact of Climate Change on Human Health, doctors Jay Lemery and Paul Auerbach say PM2.5, quote, can remain in the atmosphere for weeks and travel thousands of kilometers before depositing on the ground. Thus, these particles pose a health risk to unsuspecting populations at great distances from the origin of the pollution, unquote. That's the thing about particles from wildfire smoke. They don't just stay in one place, and they don't just disappear when the visible smoke clears out. That's exactly Tyra Benoit's experience. You'll hear more about Ty in the next episode, but for now, just know she moved to Idaho after Sonoma County's 2017 Tubbs fire. In the Treasure Valley, which is the Boise area, they they feel the impact of the fires as a result of the way the winds blow and so the smoke will descend on the treasure valley and they'll have a couple of months where it's it, it, they can see it they can feel it and this is where the whole country is headed blanketed in wildfire smoke from blazes they can't see unconcerned because they don't have to pack and flee 
it's hard to describe. They go about their lives as if there is no urgency related to this, even though, for instance, the American Lung Association gives the Treasure Valley and this Idaho area a, a failing grade as far as air quality. David Holt, the former firefighter who relocated to escape the LA smog, thought he had a plan to escape the wildfire smoke, at least for this season. I had mentioned to my neighbor who has a place in Montana, and uh, I said, well, we're, we've been there and stayed, spent some time with him. I said, maybe this summer we're going to spend a couple of months up there with you. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, last year the smoke was worse in Montana than it was here because it blows up that way. You know, <laughs> it was, it was, all the smoke from California was blowing into Montana and probably Idaho and all that area. So that lets that out. <laughs> On August 23rd, the same morning that the air quality in Sebastopol measured a healthy 13 only 12 miles from the fire, West Yellowstone, Montana, the little town huddled along the edge of Yellowstone National Park, 1,200 miles away from where the fire was burning, West Yellowstone's air measured unhealthy, or the pack of cigarettes a day in Daly's analogy. Forecasters at Montana's Department of Environmental Quality specifically cited, quote, smoke from California as the cause. Wildfire smoke knows no boundaries and is more prevalent than ever, which means greater chances of its tiny particles finding their way through our noses and into our lungs, regardless of where we lay our heads at night. The idea that climate change can impact the brain itself seems somewhat abstract. Sure, little particles can clog your lungs and make it tough to breathe, but it's harder to picture that climate change can affect the way we think. But it can. In addition to spewing particulate matter into the air, wildfires change the ratio of gases that make up the air we breathe, and that can affect how well our brains work. Typically, the air we breathe is mostly nitrogen, a fifth oxygen, and then a combination of other gases, including carbon dioxide. Wildfires affect that balance. They release a lot of CO2 as they burn. This hot carbon dioxide rises into the atmosphere, but some settles where we can breathe it. High levels of carbon dioxide cause dizziness, increased heart rate, and high blood pressure. And a high level of CO2 can also make you restless or sleepy. For proof, just cast your mind back to elementary school. Carbon dioxide is heavier than the mean weight of air. So toddlers and kids who are in primary school and stuff are breathing air that has twice the level of CO2 as their teacher who's standing up. That's why later in the day, the kids will tend to doze off. The teacher gets frustrated. She says, okay, stand up. I want everybody to do something, you know. And one of the benefits is they get out of the carbon dioxide level. They stir the air up, and the teacher thinks it's exercise, which it is in part, but also it's access to more oxygen. Like Coster says, this acute effect of CO2 increase, the sluggishness, that'll wear off as the air composition balances out. But higher rates of CO2 can also have longer-lasting implications on our capacity to think and to learn, what's called cognitive function. At the low end, our brains complete what researchers call basic activity, which is your brain's baseline, your ability to respond to a stimulus. 
Are you alert? Can you focus? For example, I'm awake and I feel my stomach rumble. I acknowledge that I'm hungry. That's basic brain activity. As you move up the cognitive function ladder, you get to concepts like initiative. In my case, my brain wants to do something about this hunger situation, so I decide to go out for a burrito. On the higher end of cognitive function, our brains complete more complex computational and analytical exercises. This is where comparison and decision-making come into play. For example, if, without traffic, it takes me 50 minutes to get from Santa Rosa to San Francisco, but traffic on 101 is only moving at 30 miles an hour, how much longer will it take me to get to the city for my favorite burrito? <laughs> Strong cognitive function is important to Californians. Of course, the ability to process information is important to everyone, and it becomes more consequential as you get older. In 2011, researchers at the University of Michigan measured air pollution outside schools to determine whether it impacted how well the students inside could learn. The data was controlled for socioeconomic status and divided by grade level, so researchers could determine how unhealthy air impacted kids at different ages, regardless of how much money their family made. The study found that schools located in the most polluted areas had the greatest percentage of students who failed state exams. These students are battling the effects of bad air on two fronts. One is a learning deficit brought on by repeat exposure to conditions that make it harder to focus. Yes, it is cumulative, but it's cumulative because of failure to learn. So if you don't learn ABC, then you don't learn, you know, CAT. And then when you get up into math or pollination, you can't get it. But the research also showed a large gap between fourth and fifth graders' performance. Fifth graders and up fail at twice the rate as fourth graders and below. And that's because the older kids need to use advanced cognitive function to pass their tests. We all do as we get older. Take my burrito example. Traffic is bad and I'm pretty hungry. I check to see if there's a back way that'll skip the traffic in Petaluma, but I'm also realizing that I can't necessarily wait to get to San Francisco, even if I shorten the trip. So I start thinking about local options. Which place is closest to me now? Which one is the most efficient? Which place will offer a burrito that's big enough I can eat half now and the other half at lunch tomorrow? You get the idea. There are many options, and I need to make a decision, all while I'm behind the wheel on 101. What my brain is doing here is using advanced cognitive function, crisis response, information seeking, breadth of approach, strategy. This is more complex thinking, and my brain can best perform when it's running on clean, properly oxygenated air. And that's what those older students don't have. It's why you see a jump in the percentage of students who fail, because fifth grade is when Koster says students move from focused activity, or just doing what you're told, to more creative and strategic thinking. Their brains need to function at a higher level, but they can't. And that Michigan study tells us poor air quality is to blame. Here in Sonoma County, the acupuncturist and allergist Steven Zilber has been well aware of the link between unhealthy air and children's brain function for years. We should have had great HEPA filters running in our classrooms to protect our kids. Um, I mean, I paid to put HEPA filters in my kids' classrooms four years ago, right when the, the wildfires were starting. And 
they said, oh, you don't really need to do that. And I said, yes, we do. Zilber has his doctorate of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and he runs the Allergy Relief Center of Sonoma County. He's not wrong. We do need HEPA filters in schools. We need them everywhere. But HEPA filters only remove particulate matter. They can't reduce CO2 concentration. They can't oxygenate the room. In addition to this study, there's a large body of research that ties ventilation rates to performance. The research shows that poor air quality from a group of people exhaling CO2 all day in a room without open windows is enough to make them all less productive. The thing is, this research isn't taking into account the additional CO2 and toxins cast into the air during massive wildfires. The carbon dioxide levels in forest fire emissions will go up and oxygen levels will go down. But forest fire emissions have a lot more chemicals and pollutants in it than standard indoor air quality in a school. So indoor air needs robust particle filtration, but we need to go a step further and, as Coster pushes for, inject oxygen inside our classrooms and offices and homes to counteract both the increased CO2 from wildfire and from being stuck inside with the windows shut to avoid the smoke. Dr. Daly advises it's best to stay indoors during bad air days, but what if the indoor air isn't any good either? I want to go back to my burrito example, but let's ditch the burrito this time. Let's say, for the past week, you've been inside your house almost 24 hours a day, with windows shut and doors rarely open, trying to avoid the smoke. You did what the authorities said and turned off the outside air intake on your HVAC system so you don't suck in the bad air. You and everyone you live with has been breathing the same air for days, and as the week's gone on, you've gotten tired and restless. Then, one night at around 11.30, your phone buzzes. Your neighborhood is being evacuated. There's a fire approaching. You now have decisions to make, and fast. You select your most precious belongings, find a few boxes and fill them up. You grab go bags with underwear, old toothbrushes, birth certificates, and passports. You put on a respirator and run this stuff outside in a few trips to the staging area on the deck where your husband is sizing it all up for packing in the car. In all the back and forth, inside, outside, the dog gets out. You scream at your husband like it's his fault, then you remember, Grandpa's silver fountain pen is still in your desk drawer. You get a slew of texts simultaneously. I hear 12 is totally gridlocked. What's your plan? Do you need a place to stay? We're in Oakland and it's really smoky, but no fire. Smiley emoji. Am I in zone 1J2 with you guys? Do I have to leave too? You're welcome to come here, but we're zone 4J2, so we may also have to evac at some point. You start responding, but the baby monitor chirps and you go to get your toddler. Oh, wait, the fountain pen. You go back to your office, pick it out of the drawer, jam it in your back pocket, run back outside, call the dog, strap the baby in her car seat, look around for your husband who's playing suitcase Tetris, and ask, so wait, where are we going? The Oakland offers a no, simply because it'll take eons to get there and the fire doesn't really look like it's threatening. Better to stay closer to home. The coast usually has a sea breeze, which keeps the smoke at bay, so heading west on 116 might make sense, but we wouldn't have an actual destination. Oh, shoot, you need to text your confused friend. Not in our zone. Stay home, you advise. But get packed. Back to your options. 
If we go eastbound, 101 will be jammed, but it'd take us to 80, which would put us toward Tahoe, but rooms there are pricey now because that's what everyone's doing. You settle on the last offer from friends in zone 4J2. Their place is close enough to get home once the threat passes, but also leaves open both the coastal and the inland escape hatches in the event their zone evacuates too. It takes you over an hour to get there because, well, everyone is on the same winding forest roads, and then three hours later, their neighborhood gets evacuated too, and you have to make decisions again. This is the definition of complex cognitive thinking. It requires absorbing lots of information from many different sources, prioritizing, weighing options, calculating outcomes, and then making a choice during a crisis. It's one thing to fail a fifth grade math exam because your brain isn't firing on all cylinders, but what happens when the stakes are higher? Like I said before, strong cognitive function is important to Californians. Up until this point, all these illnesses, asthma, heart attack, stroke, decreased cognitive function, they result from inhaling toxins. But breathing isn't the only way toxic particles get inside our bodies during and after a disaster. David Holt points this out. Even though they may have a breathing apparatus uh, when they're actively fighting a fire, they're finding that the residues and, and smokes and stuff that has stayed on their clothing is almost as bad as the smoke that they are being protected from. So I've seen reports that now that they're uh, being quite uh, diligent in taking care of their clothing when they are done fighting a fire, as well as the breathing apparatus. After the Tubbs fire in 2017, researchers tested firefighters' blood and urine, and the results showed increased levels of neurotoxins and carcinogens. In an article in the Press Democrat, a local firefighter and president of the City Firefighters Union said these increasingly more intense fires are considered firefighters, quote, West Coast 9-11. What he's referring to is that, according to Enviromedics, 70% of the 10,000 workers who cleared the World Trade Center site after 9-11 had substantially worsened respiratory problems, sinusitis, and gastrointestinal ailments. Later research showed increased rates of prostate, skin, and thyroid cancers, too. So you don't have to be in the fire to develop scary long-term problems. And it's not just about fire, either. In 2019, Sonoma County's Russian River rose 46 feet, 14 feet beyond flood stage, and inundated 2,000 buildings. Two towns became islands in the middle of this massive new floodplain. We had major floods. And in, in Sonoma and the river uh, corridor, and tons of patients who are out in the Guerneville area, uh, Forestville, their homes were flooded and a lot of mold damage. And then seeing the impact of that from asthma, from you know, just coming back to the idea of total burden load on their system and toxic load. You know, I don't think we begin to know what people were exposed to, not just in the water, but pesticide runoff, uh, petrochemical runoff, everything that got swept through in those floods, that got deposited. 
cleaning up from any environmental disaster can increase the amount of toxins accumulated in the body. And beyond the cancers and respiratory problems we already know about, there's something else to be concerned for. So this is one of the predominant theories of with increased toxic burden in our food supply, in our environment, food, water, and air, we are having higher incidence of autoimmune disease. Autoimmune disease is what happens when the body's immune system mistakes its own healthy tissues as foreign and attacks them. Dr. Zilber is seeing autoimmune disease in younger and younger patients, which could be due to early and more regular exposure to toxins. He says that blood work and other tests can help determine your toxic load, but patients often aren't interested until it's too late. Oftentimes, people don't want to do that until they're symptomatic. And then we're going back and saying, well, this disease you have or this condition you're now complaining about, well, tracing back, that probably was due to you at wildfire exposure, chemical exposure five years ago, and now it's worked its way through and it's manifesting as frank illness. So what can we do to reduce toxic load right away? Plenty of people promote detoxes, the idea that ingesting different substances and certain foods can rid your body of the toxins. But Dr. Zilber said that's not exactly how the body works. He says the only method for clearing them out is with what's called biotransformation, allowing our own organs to do the work when they can. We have the ability to transform certain chemicals and hopefully then eliminate them from our body. Those are our elimination pathways. So it's our lungs, our liver, kidneys, our GI tract, and our skin. It's not quite true to say that you can support detoxification. There's a lot of honestly misguided information out there and a lot of, I don't want to say hucksterism, but people pushing different detoxes. Again, it's a much larger discussion. Dr. Tom Daly, the Kaiser pulmonologist, says removing toxins is simply impossible sometimes. So the best way to stay healthy is to take preventative measures. Use HEPA filters and figure out a way to oxygenate all indoor spaces and always wear at least an N95 mask outside in bad air. Clean all indoor and outdoor living areas after smoky conditions or if ash has fallen. And wear gloves and other protective gear when you do. Change and wash your clothes right away when you come inside and then hop in the shower immediately. I, I would say Given the last five years of wild smoke and, and toxic air exposure that we've had, pretty much everyone in Northern California is already uh, has an increased burden. And so we should all be checking this out. Since I spoke with Dr. Zilber, wildfire smoke from Western states and Canada has blanketed the entire continental U.S. New Yorkers have woken up to an apocalyptic orange sun and unhealthy levels of PM2.5, while the air in one Minnesota city was considered hazardous. It used to be that if you lived far enough away from wildfire, you wouldn't be exposed to toxic air. 
but climate change has ensured that environmental disasters are now big enough to make us sick from coast to coast. Here's Dr. Daly again. People have always said you are what you eat, and uh, I'm going to say we are what we breathe. Uh, and because what you inhale, you don't necessarily exhale. It may stay with you. You know, and that's what we've seen, you know, whether it's, it's tobacco smoke, whether it's fire smoke, uh, asbestos exposures, the things that we inhale, we don't necessarily exhale. You know, you ask, can we detox after we've had these exposures? And pretty much on the whole, the answer is no. And uh, what that means is we need to avoid that exposure in the first place. So whether that's uh, taking personal responsibility for ourselves and our families and public exposures and preparing our homes for the next uh, fire, air quality emergency we know is coming, uh, or whether it's working on a bigger societal level, trying to do things about climate change, trying to do things about ending smoking in our society, uh, uh, stopping these uh, uh, the fires that we have been experiencing. Um, you know, whatever we want to do, prevention more effective. Once we've been exposed, uh, there's a limit to what we can do. I know this is a lot. Particulate matter, cognitive function, toxins. I was four months pregnant in 2018 when smoke from the campfire settled over Santa Rosa. The campfire was the urban firestorm that destroyed the town of Paradise. 18,000 buildings burned, with the majority of the destruction happening in just four hours, and all that smoke blew right over where we live. I wore a commercial-grade respirator to class and suffered more nosebleeds in the library bathroom than I care to count. I was nine months pregnant when the Russian River flooded and stranded me in my little town. I dreamt I gave birth in the back of a National Guard Humvee, that our local legend of a fire chief caught my baby. But moving back to the town where I'm from, back to New York, doesn't feel that much safer thanks to sea level rise, hurricane, and storm surges. And now they have smoke problems too. Wherever we live, the threat to our health will exist. It's all really heavy for pregnant people, for parents, for providers in the medical field like Dr. Zilber. Unfortunately, you know, it sometimes can feel like, you know, it's the proverbial rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. That, you know, we know that we are moving headlong into a really bad situation. Um, I don't think anyone reasonably question that at this point. Like you, I have young children. My son is 11. My daughter's about to be 14. You know, my wife and I, we talk about what's the world that they're going to be growing up in. And the more, if they have children, what's their world going to be like? And these are big existential questions. Fifty years ago, David Holt moved his family from Southern California to Butte County in the north. Butte calls itself the land of natural wealth and beauty. It borders the Tahoe National Forest. Holt moved for a different lifestyle, one shaped by the great outdoors and ranch life, one with lots of fresh, no-smog air and a sense of peace from the Vietnam War. David raised his family there, and one son stayed in the county, 
moving to a town called Paradise. Perhaps with the same kind of vision his father had for good health and tranquility. But David's son lost everything in 2018's campfire, and then David lost his home and barn too in the most recent round of Butte County fires. So, where do you go to be protected? What do you do when you flee one environmental disaster but get confronted with another? How do you ensure you can provide security and peace and health when catastrophe is spreading, when it's in the air? Sonoma County Supervisor Linda Hopkins has mulled this over too. We have certainly given some thought to the long-term health out- outcomes and impacts of repeat mass conflagrations. I also serve on two air district boards, and so this is a topic of just top concern. Every single time there's a wildfire, you have hordes of parents, concerned community members coming out and asking, is it safe to go outside? Is it safe to breathe the air? Is it safe for my child to be in school? We're at the point here where the state of California is essentially considering creating clean air spaces. So basically buying a bunch of air filters to run in libraries and schools where people can go to try to breathe clean air. And to me, that's just, it's such a sad statement of where we're at, right? We, we shouldn't be talking about buying air filters and keeping them running inside houses. We should be talking about how do we clear our skies? How do we reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfire? Back after World War II, when the San Francisco Bay Area was booming and air pollution was measured by residents' eye irritation, the counties surrounding the Bay became the first in the country to organize in an attempt to solve the problem. Now, 80 years later, every county in the U.S. is subject to air quality monitoring. Could Sonoma County be on the forefront again? Do our fellow Americans look at us and see themselves? Can they recognize that even without visible fire, their air can be sickening? Do they know that even after experiencing wildfire smoke from a blaze a thousand miles away, the novelty isn't the only thing it's left behind? I do hope that what we are going through in Sonoma County is a bit of a wake-up call because it is not just us. Um, We might be the canaries in the coal mines, um, but we're seeing the increased severity of hurricane season and people who are also constantly evacuated from their home due to hurricane risk or coming back to floodwaters and the health impacts and long-term health impacts of those experiences. The Southeast actually is also experiencing unprecedented fire seasons. They're just not getting quite as much press coverage, it seems, as the state of California, since I believe ours are more severe. Um, But this is a reality that we are all going to have to confront, and I hope that we can have the sense of urgency around it that the moment demands. After years of denial, Representative Jared Huffman is starting to see a shift in mindset in his colleagues in the U.S. House of Representatives. I think some real cynical um, characters in the fossil fuel industry uh, radicalized this issue and in a very calculated way uh, contributed to the partisan divide on climate change and the denialism and and some of the posturing that, that we're still grappling with. But but I think now we're, we're maybe entering into a new phase where the reality of climate change is so indisputable and so universal um, that we, we sort of have to reset the conversation. And, and uh, many of my colleagues across the aisle haven't yet figured out that there's just got to be a hard break with fossil fuel. Uh, they may not quite be there yet, but a growing number of them are at least uh, done with 
denying climate change and at least starting to connect the dots that maybe this is bad for them and their district and their region as well. And it's not just a, you know, a California thing. There's a particularly striking line from Environmedics that I want to share with you now. It reads, In a moment of stress, you may say to someone, Just take a deep breath. This follows the historical notion that fresh air is a salve to most of life's problems. But if we don't do something dramatic to repair our environment, if it keeps changing in ways that hurt our hearts both actually and metaphorically, we may need to advise that same stressed-out person, just try to hold your breath. Next time on Chronic Catastrophe. But as far as like material stuff that was saved, there was really nothing. I mean, there was nothing that was there when we went up after the fire. There were remnants, you know, the the, the bathtub and you know the fireplace and metal things, but nothing that was like really salvageable or usable again. In this situation, it's common for people to say, well, it's all just stuff. It can be replaced. That's not entirely wrong. A lot of it can. But when you lose your home to an environmental disaster, what's left isn't just a heap of framing and shingles. The pile that's left is a funeral pyre for the items that define where we come from, what makes us us when you when you lose everything it's kind of it's a different kind of grief because it means that you've actually lost a part of yourself after you lose what's irreplaceable what happens to your identity so i finally decided that there was no way that i could keep teaching because i that i did need to leave behind i credit that kind of thing with making me forcing me to grow up what happens to a family's identity and a community's? I wouldn't have made that same decision that my parents made to rebuild. My hope is that these experiences we've had of sharing survival and evacuation and power outages will give us a sense of community that will undergird the resilience that we'll need to get through the next one that comes. In the next episode, we examine how rebuilding after a disaster doesn't just mean we rebuild our homes. We rebuild ourselves, we redefine our families, and we reconsider what it means to be a community. I'm Lauren Spates, and this is Chronic Catastrophe, a podcast brought to you by a grant from California Humanities through the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Emerging Journalist Fellowship Program. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Bell, Maritza Camacho, and Nick Vitas. The score was written by Fabian Middleman. Special thanks to James Demisio and to Ann Belden, our advisor at Santa Rosa Junior College, for her unwavering support and invaluable guidance. Episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>